Hi everyone and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. And I'd like to confess something right from the start of today's episode. I am a recovering Strat star. That is to say, once upon a time, I was a full-blown, letter-wearing, basking in the southernness of it all, very blonde at the time, sorority girl. I used to party with the best of them at fraternity mixers with questionable themes and even more questionably constructed costumes. I had an intense love-hate for that special time of the year when recruitment rolled around and we had to sing songs, make polite conversation, and stay up until the wee hours of the morning judging other women. I knew my way around making a bucket. Long live the Frozen remixed, Do You Want to Build a Bucket Party? I once threw with my friend Megan. For those who don't know, bucket was the colloquial term at my alma mater for jungle juice. I could walk to any of the houses that were owned by my favorite fraternity with my eyes closed and a shot or two flowing through my system. And I did it all on a small, southern, bubble-like campus where it felt like nothing could ever truly hurt us. Looking back now at 26, it not only feels silly to have once believed that, it's scary because it wasn't ever true. If I could give young whippersnapper college freshman Maggie some advice, and to anyone else who's listening who might be going off to college themselves, which simply good fucking luck with that in this year of COVID, or who knows someone in college, the wisdom I'd share might include tips like, thou shalt not survive on iced coffee alone. You need to eat, damn it. You do not need that extra coating of spray tan, no matter what your recruitment chair tells you. Always make sure that your water bottle lid is closed fully before rocking across campus with it loose in your bag with your laptop in it, which will promptly start smoking when you pull it out. Make friends with the health services, doctors and nurses, because you never know when you might need it. Don't for... For the love of God, don't pull a fire alarm in your university-sanctioned housing where there is definitely a video camera catching you doing so. I will not confirm or deny at this time if I'm speaking from personal experience on this one, but if you happen to do so, get a lawyer. It's a fucking misdemeanor. And maybe my last tip would be this. You are not as invincible as you think you are. Don't fool yourself into thinking that because it's one of the most dangerous fallacies you could fall for, and it might very well lead you to that irreparable damage you think could never befall you. College is scary for a number of reasons. One of the scariest things I've learned only in my years since I've graduated is that no matter how many fun parties you attend with friends you'll have for life, how many incredible professors you meet who light up an educational interest in you, or how many life-changing memories you make, it can be dangerous if you're not careful, if you're not smart, if you're simply not thinking. For all the day drinks and bid days and random Thursday nights at the bars on campus, my friends and I laugh sometimes about how it's a wonder that none of us wound up dead. But those laughs cover up more than a little bit of a sobering realization of how legitimately dangerous college can be and how lucky we are that nothing truly bad happened to us. Something truly bad did happen to Lauren Spear, though. 
a girl like so many others who went off to college at Indiana University, except she never came home. Today, I'm telling you about the disappearance of Lauren Spear and how one night out in a college town, much like any other, went so wrong and still has so many hashtag questions surrounding it nine years later. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. and 20-year-old rising junior Lauren Spearer was ready to let loose. The 20-year-old was still on campus at Indiana University, located in the town of Bloomington, to take a summer class or two for her textiles merchandising degree. I know at my alma mater, summer sessions were referred to as camp, name of alma mater, because of how shall we say, lackadaisical campus became for those who stuck around in the summer months. And let me just say, guys, I'm really doing my best here to not get a nasty letter from my alumni association at some point. Lauren's parents, Robert and Charlene, had long been used to their daughter spending her summers away. Growing up in an affluent community of Scarsdale, New York, Lauren had attended a summer camp year after year growing up, Camp Tawanda, where she had made friends with people who followed her to IU including her boyfriend, Jesse Wolf, who she'd been dating for about two years in June 2011, and one of her closest friends, Jay Rosenbaum. Lauren was said to be fun-loving and bubbly. Her mother described her as vivacious. She was said to have loved the music of the 60s and 70s. She enjoyed playing soccer and lacrosse, and she was pretty involved with the Jewish Hallel community at IU, and she even went to Israel on her previous spring break to help plant trees as a Jewish National Fund initiative. In fact, part of the reason that she chose IU was because of the large Jewish population at the school and how active the Hillel community on campus was. An IU classmate's mother even wrote to Charlene, Lauren's mother, after her disappearance to say that her own daughter had been jealous of Lauren and her popularity. But when she found herself struggling, Lauren had been the first to reach out to help this girl, which showed the other girl how truly caring that this girl that she had been jealous of really was. She was a blonde, blue-eyed, verifiable little pixie. She barely topped five feet, and she was maybe 90 pounds soaking wet. And for all accounts, she seemed like the pretty, popular college girl most wanted to be friends with. And she did have a lot of friends, who she, like most college kids, enjoyed going out and partying with. Lauren, on top of everything else, was known to enjoy her nights out. However, this penchant for partying hadn't always wound up with just a hangover and an embarrassing moment to remember the next morning. She had gotten into some legal trouble a time or two before. In June 2011, Lauren was still under the legal drinking age, and in that fall, on September 2nd, 2010, she had actually been arrested for public intoxication and illegal consumption. IU was known then, and probably hasn't changed much today, to have quite the party scene with underage drinking, excessive alcohol, and drug use as well. With roughly 33,000 undergrads alone, that doesn't strike me as too shocking, to be quite honest. The phenomenon of what booze-soaked campuses colleges have become in this country is indicative of a lot of things, some of which we'll discuss later. But simply put, 
when kids are let loose from under their parents' watchful eyes, party they will. And partying is just what Lauren seemed to have in mind on June 3rd, 2011. Now, before we get into the night in question, I want to introduce you to our cast of characters and make a few things clear. This isn't unique to most cases, but rumors abound when it comes to a variety of aspects in this story. Maybe they feel more abundant than most because it takes place on a college campus, but there are a lot of internet whisperings and I knew someone who knew XYZ anecdotes that crop up throughout this story. The presence of these rumors have also affected how the telling of Lauren's story has shifted and morphed over the years. Not, you know, unlike how gossip usually works, and lest we forget the rampage Yik Yak used to wreck across campuses just a few years ago. And if you're not of a, if you are of a post Yik Yak generation, I am just so sorry you missed out because it was the best of times and it was the worst of times to be on a college campus when Yik Yak was around. That said, let's meet the people who play pivotal roles in today's story. We have 21-year-old rising senior Jesse Wolf, Lauren's long-term boyfriend. The two had met years before at Camp Tawanda, and they'd been dating for two years at the time of her disappearance. There was 20-year-old David Roan, one of Lauren's friends who lived in her same apartment complex, Smallwood Plaza. 20-year-old Hadar Tamir was one of Lauren's roommates. Hadar had gone to a different camp from Lauren, Camp Chenawanda, but all of these camps apparently were in some sort of similar network, so Hadar and Lauren had known each other prior to coming to IU. In fact, most of Lauren's friends all knew each other from this camp network. According to Deseret News, Hadar shared that, quote, we pretty much had our group of friends made out before we came here. And as we'll come to see, Hadar really liked talking to the press in the initial aftermath of Lauren's disappearance. One of Lauren's closest friends on campus was 21-year-old Jason Rosenbaum, who went by Jay. He was one of her longtime camp friends, and he was also friendly with Jesse. There were two, also two other people Lauren interacted with on June 3rd, 21-year-old Corey Rossman and his roommate, 20-year-old Michael Beth. Now, Lauren had only met Corey the week before after they attended the Indy 500 and wound up socializing there. It's an important detail because of all the people I just mentioned, this guy who she didn't really know all that well is the one who Lauren spent the majority of her last night with. Another important detail, the ages of everyone involved. I think it's crucial to note them because who amongst us, at least the Americans who attended college who are listening, did not rely on older friends to secure alcohol before we ourselves turned 21. Whether that was through passed down fake IDs or through a simple monetary exchange between friends, there's really no limit to the ways that underage college kids can finagle themselves some alcohol, especially when they have older friends. And also of note, Lauren's birthday wasn't until January 17th, so she still had a ways to go before she was of the legal drinking age. However, everyone else she drank with that night was already 21. It's just something I wanna point out so we can discuss it further later on. Let's dive into the events of that night, shall we? According to Tamar and video surveillance, Lauren left her Smallwood Plaza apartment around midnight on June 3rd to head over to Jay Rosenbaum's apartment for what we can assume was a pregame situation. 
the concept of going out for the night at midnight is like exhausting to even think about now. But I admit, leaving for a party at midnight was pretty standard at my alma mater. Pre-games, we'd probably head to around 10.30 or 11, but like maybe that's just a Southern thing. This video surveillance is one of the most well-known images of the case. We see Lauren walking towards what are the doors of her apartment building. She was wearing a black pair of leggings, a white top, looked to be carrying maybe a cream-colored sweatshirt or sweater over her arms. She's smiling. She's happy. Accompanying her on the six-minute walk over to Jay's place at five North Townhomes was her neighbor, David Roan. Jay allegedly had at least one guest from his home state of Michigan visiting and staying with him, so I'm guessing that the game plan might have been to pop over to Jay's for a pregame and to socialize with this guest before the group headed out for the evening. That night, the group that we know gathered at Jay's around midnight was Lauren, Jay, this guest of his whose name has never been publicized, David Roan, and Jay's friend and neighbor, Corey Rossman. Jesse, it should be noted, did not attend this gathering with Lauren. Apparently, he was content to watch basketball rather than to go out on this particular evening, though the two were allegedly texting throughout the beginning part of the night. That kind of happened, but not fully. By 12.30 a.m., we know that David left Jay's and headed back to Smallwood. Remaining at Jay's were Lauren, Corey, Jay, and this visiting mystery friend. What's interesting to me maybe again, coming from my own former college student perspective, is that Jay's apartment where the pregame was held was in the opposite direction of where the bars were, and specifically where Kilroy's sports bar was. I know my friends and I, we used to always plan where we were getting ready and where we pregamed around our end destination. So it's interesting to me that Lauren would basically go out of her way to go to Jay's in the opposite direction and then go to the bar, which was actually closer to her own apartment. It's just a small detail that makes me wonder if Kilroy's was always the end game for the evening. In any regard, Lauren's next movements are at Kilroy's, with only Corey though. For whatever reason, Jay and his guests didn't join them. So at 1.46 a.m., Lauren is known to enter Kilroy's with this Indy 500 dude that she met the week before. However, barely 40 minutes later, Lauren leaves Kilroy's at 2.27 a.m. Walking out, she has Corey with her still, but she's without her shoes and she's without her phone. Kilroy's appears to have a few other bars under what I assume is the same management bearing the Kilroy's name throughout the town of Bloomington. The bar that Lauren was at on June 3rd was Kilroy's Sports Bar. It looked like a typically college dive bar to me when I checked it out online but it was said to be two levels on the inside with multiple bars, and there was a patio out in the back that was converted to have a beachy vibe in the middle of Indiana, thanks to the sand that was put down out there. Apparently, it wasn't too strange for bar patrons to kick off their shoes while they were out there, but Lauren just straight up left hers there. And I think that gives a bit of an indication into just how drunk she was, because that seems like a pretty classic drunk move to me. It's also noted that she left her phone there, another classic drunk move, but it quirks an eyebrow for me. Lauren was said to have been texting Jesse all during the night up until now, and then suddenly she's phoneless and leaving the bar. 
Maybe she simply lost track of it or it fell out of her pocket or purse. But it makes me pause because there is nothing a drunk girl loves more than texting while drunk. Jesse later told investigators that he went to bed around 2.30 and some accounts say that he turned in because he couldn't get a hold of Lauren anymore. Is there a correlation between any of these events? Did Lauren innocently, albeit mistakenly, lose her phone? Did she get into some argument with Jesse over text and put her phone down only to forget it while she continued to drink? Or did someone take her phone away from her? But even beyond the logistics of how Lauren lost her phone, I want to know, why did these two leave Kilroy's only 40 minutes after they arrived? Like I said earlier, this is just a detail that makes me quirk an eyebrow, which ends up being the case for a lot of the details in this story. At 2.30 a.m., Lauren and Corey are already walking back to Lauren's apartment complex, Smallwood Plaza. We know this because there's a hell of an interaction when they arrive on the fifth floor of the building where Lauren's own unit was located. This is one of the instances in this case which both fact and rumor are mixed into. We don't know explicitly what led to this, but within minutes of being back at Smallwood, Corey gets socked in the face. The Journal News and the Herald Times both identified the puncher as fellow IU student, Zach Oates, someone who may or may not have been a friend of Jesse's. It's been reported that Zach noticed how drunk Lauren was and he asked if she was all right. Stories and details change right about here with some reports saying that Corey claimed Lauren was fine and he was taking care of her. Some say that Corey cursed at Zach and others say that Corey might have been acting weird around the visibly drunk Lauren, weird enough to warrant another student to step into the situation. Lauren's father even made a comment about the whole scenario saying, quote, we have heard that Zach Oaks and two other boys observed Lauren and Corey and that Lauren was in bad shape and they didn't like what they observed at that point and they wanted Corey to take Lauren back to her apartment. I believe the reason why Corey got hit was because of what they were observing as far as Lauren's condition and Corey's behavior was concerned. In any regard, the facts are these. They enter Smallwood at 2.30 a.m. and ride the elevator to the fifth floor where Lauren's apartment is located. There's an altercation at some sort. Corey gets punched in the face. And then 12 minutes later at 2.42 a.m., the two leave Smallwood without ever having gone into Lauren's apartment. And it's here I need to ask a huge why. I don't know what all the distance between the elevator and Lauren's unit was, but I can't imagine that they were that far from her front door. Which then, seriously, why did they just go into her apartment? Or at least why did Lauren go back to her own place, even if only to grab another pair of shoes? Why did she ever leave Smallwood after 2.30 a.m.? There's usually about a slim to none chance of interpreting drunk logic, but I just don't understand why, when they were probably within steps of her apartment, why Lauren didn't just go back to her place. Because honestly, I imagine that if she had, if she just called it in for the night at that point in time, I doubt I'd be telling you this story. At 2.42 a.m., Lauren and an allegedly dazed Corey are seen on surveillance cameras leaving Smallwood. I say allegedly because Corey's lawyer, Carl Salzman, 
would later tell reporters that he, quote, might have sustained a concussion from the blow and couldn't remember why the fight happened or much of what occurred afterward. That is a hell of a coincidence, given what all did occur after this. It's here in our timeline that the falling down begins. Before even Lauren clears the entrance of her complex, video caught her stumbling and tripping to the point where Corey physically helped her walk out of the building. We are not off to a good start on this second leg of our drunken journey. Reports say that Lauren was sitting on a staircase, which I've come to believe must have been either the steps leading up to the lobby of her complex or maybe even the stoop of another building. Hell, some reports even simply said that she was just sitting on the curb. And at this point in time, a woman bystander saw Lauren and promptly saw Lauren simply tip backwards and smack her head on the concrete to the point that the noise of it was both audible and noticeable enough to get this woman's attention. The woman is said to have called out and asked if Lauren was okay. And once again, Corey allegedly pipes up that quote, she's okay, I'll take care of it. Now, Corey's not in too great shape himself, I should point out, because his lawyer certainly likes to remind people that he might have been concussed at this point. It truly was the blind leading the blind at this point, except the blind are blind drunk in this case. From what we know now, the two were making their way from Lauren's apartment building back up the street to five North townhomes where they had started their evening. Earlier, I noticed that it was only a six minute walk between the two apartment buildings and it was maybe 0.3 miles. Lauren and Corey though, almost double the length of time it takes to get between the buildings on this night. As they're making their way downtown, except I think it's actually uptown in this instance, Lauren falls for the second time. Apparently she was so out of it, she didn't even have the reflex to try and catch herself and her face caught her instead. Any sort of facial injury was legitimately my biggest nightmare in college and it still is to this day. Personally, I have dental implants and I'm a verifiable nut about my teeth in general to the point that when I was a newly initiated sorority woman, I told my big that I didn't care what happened to me on my initiation night, that most infamous of nights in Panhellenic culture. In my sorority's case, it was when newly initiated members were more or less quote unquote hazed via just alcohol consumption for an entire night after six weeks of sobriety. In any regard, I told my big, I truly didn't care what was in store for me so long as nothing happened to my teeth. It might sound like a weird request, but it was for good reason. Every spring, once new girls were initiated to their various organizations, the number of chipped front teeth that occurred after taking a bottle of Andre to the face too hard truly skyrocketed on my campus. I remember at least one girl from my own pledge class who had to make this nightmare of a call home to mom and dad after our initiation. So yes, I digress. But again, I think that Lauren face planting in the sidewalk it's a pretty clear sign of how intoxicated she was because you've got to be some level of impaired where your reflexes aren't just slowed. They don't even rise to the occasion. As Lauren picked herself up though, it was reported she took a few steps 
and then fell down again. Here, once again, stories differ. Some say that at this point, Corey, fed up with Lauren's discombobulation apparently, threw her fireman style over his shoulder and on they walked. However, another witness allegedly saw a man with a girl looking like Lauren over his shoulder almost a full hour later at 3.38 a.m. This witness has been kind of discredited, kind of viewed as having her timeline mixed up. It's just never been confirmed one way or another. According to the Indianapolis Monthly, John Cutter, who's a private investigator that was later hired by Lauren's parents, said that after he interviewed this witness, quote, he believes the woman described was Lauren, but he isn't sure the stated time frame is accurate. Chalk it up to yet another eyebrow cork detail. What is confirmed, though, is Lauren's next sighting. At 2.48 a.m., surveillance cameras documented Lauren entering an alleyway between College Street and Morton Street apparently walking of her own volition. There is someone else with her, but the police refuse to ID who it is. But like, it stands to reason that it was Corey. And my question is, why keep this so secretive? Why not just come out and say it was Corey if it was him? We know that they were together up until this point. And if it's not Corey, then who the hell is it? And where then is Corey? Somewhere in the alleyway, Lauren adds more missing items to her list. She loses her keys, which are found in this alleyway the next day. Once again, stories differ about if she lost a wristlet purse as well, because one was found in the same area after Lauren went missing. We do know for sure that her keys were left behind in the alleyway. And I'm curious how that happened. Just like I'm curious about how she left her phone at Kilroy's. Maybe I'm just the odd one out, but I used to be super vigilant about making sure I had my phone and keys, keys in the form of my student ID card, since my college used mainly swipe access to buildings. I used to be really vigilant about that at all times. I'm still rather neurotic about it today as an adult, because once you lock yourself out one time, you are liable to never do it again. It just adds more questions to the ever-growing pile of them surrounding the issue of how out of it was Lauren. Lauren's next movements are logged at 2.51 a.m. when another surveillance camera catches sight of her exiting the alleyway. The sheer amount of surveillance cameras posted in this area will come in handy and under suspicion later on. And finally, at just around 3 a.m., Lauren and Corey rock up to Five North Townhomes in true drunk college kid style. They beeline it to Corey's apartment where his unsuspecting roommate, Michael Beth, is accosted by these two after he had just spent the night working on papers and studying. Apparently on the way up the stairs, Corey's, and I'm using air quotes, concussion and general drunkenness get the best of him and he unceremoniously yaks outside of the apartment. Like a good roommate though, Michael helps Corey stagger into bed and now he is left with Lauren who is showing no sign of slowing down. It's been reported that Lauren kept wheedling with Michael to drink with her, to keep the party going, or even keep drinking back at Smallwood. This allegedly lasts about 30 minutes because at 3.30 a.m., Michael seems to have had enough. He allegedly offered Lauren the couch in their apartment so she could sleep there and not walk back to her place alone, but she refused, so Michael calls his neighbor two doors down, Jay Rosenbaum. Michael basically tells Jay, come get your friend. And Lauren heads down the hall to Jay's instead. 
Now, everything I'm about to tell you is all under the umbrella of allegedly, because we only have Jay's word to take for anything after this point. Lauren arrives on his doorstep and he immediately notices what a sight she is. She apparently already had a bruise forming around her eye, assumedly from when she face planted on the sidewalk, but Lauren claims that she doesn't remember how she got it. At 4.15 a.m., Jay says that Lauren uses his phone to make two calls, one to David Roan and a second call to someone who has never been identified. Both calls go unanswered and Lauren doesn't leave any messages. The call to Roan was later confirmed by police, but it's never been made public knowledge who the second call was to or why either call was made. My question, because obviously I have one, why didn't Lauren call Jesse? Who else would Lauren call at this time of night and in this state but her boyfriend? And if she did call him though, and that's who the second call was to, once again, why wouldn't the police just come right out and say that? It would be almost a surefire way to clear him. But remember, we're working under the umbrella of allegedly, because all we have is Jay's word for it that it was Lauren using his phone. And maybe the second phone call was to Jesse, but the call wasn't placed by Lauren. After these phone calls, our girl Hadar later tells the press that Jay told Lauren that, God, gossip in college, it's all a fucking Venn diagram. <laughs> anyway, Hadar says, quote, Jay tried to make Lauren stay and sleep on his couch, but she refused. I just have to wonder if he at least offered to let her borrow some shoes, even ones that wouldn't fit, to make the walk back because it became clear that Lauren was determined to go back to her own apartment. And it's here at 4.30 a.m. on June 3rd, 2011, that the last alleged sighting of Lauren is reported. Jay would later tell police that, quote, he watched her head south on college and his last glimpse of Lauren was of her standing on the sidewalk at the, quote, intersection of 11th and college. Hadar once again supplied more gossip-esque information. She told the Journal News that Jay told her, God, it really is just so much gossip. She told the Journal News that Jay told her that, quote, he watched her leave and told her, if you stumble, then I'm going to make you come back in here. But he watched her leave and she seemed fine, so he just let her go. Barefoot, no keys, no cell phone. Does not really seem fine to me, but okay. Still clad in her black leggings and white top, Lauren's blonde hair probably glinted in the streetlights as she made her way down College Street in that strange time span where night starts to turn into morning. The funny thing is, though, for almost an entire night captured on surveillance cameras, not one ever caught sight of Lauren making this alleged walk back to Smallwood Plaza. In fact, the last confirmed sighting of her on video is almost an hour and a half earlier, at 2.51 a.m. And after that, Lauren was never verifiably seen again. As most college Saturdays go, Jesse seemed to have a late start to the day. Throughout the morning, he had been texting Lauren, but to no response. Given that he knew she had been out until at least 2 a.m., I'm sure he figured her textual silence was because she was sleeping off her long night of socializing. It wasn't until the early afternoon that his phone finally buzzed with an incoming text from his girlfriend, except it quickly became apparent that it wasn't Lauren who was texting him. 
An employee at Kilroy's finally took mercy on whoever was blowing up the constantly vibrating phone and texted Jesse back with one quick message. Tell your friend her phone is here. I have to imagine that this is when the initial feeling of dread started to creep its way over him. At some point in the afternoon, Jesse got in touch with Hadar and he met up with her on campus. Hadar confirmed that as far as she knew, Lauren hadn't come home the night before and she hadn't seen her yet that day. She handed her keys off to Jesse and he headed over to the Smallwood Plaza to see if Lauren was there. Obviously, Lauren wasn't there. I can somewhat understand why Jesse went over to the apartment. Maybe Lauren had a habit of locking her door when she slept or maybe Hadar hadn't even thought to check her room. But knowing what we do now, I have to ask, what exactly did Jesse do in the Smallwood apartment? By the late afternoon, word seemed to spread throughout Lauren's social circle that she was, for all accounts, missing. Twelve hours after Jay claimed that he had seen her walking alone College Street, a police report was filed. Lauren was officially missing. Accounts vary, shocker, I know, about who exactly filed the police report. Some outlets reported that Lauren's friends, two sisters named Sarah and Amanda Rude, were the ones to fill out the police paperwork. Others say it was Jesse himself. Sometime after the paperwork was filed, though, Jesse reached out to Lauren's family. He called Rebecca, Lauren's older sister, and shared that Lauren was missing. Rebecca then immediately made what I can imagine was one of the most nauseatingly surreal calls of her life. I can't even fathom what it feels like to tell your parents that your sibling is missing. It's said that Robert, Lauren's father, turned around and called Jesse himself, who was at the Bloomington police station by this time. Charlene was on the phone as well, except she had started calling local hospitals to see if anyone matching Lauren's description had shown up, been dropped off, or even had already left the premises. By the next day, June 4th, the Spear family had arrived in Bloomington. The search was on and Lauren's parents began to realize something. Their understanding of what IU was really like, it was nowhere close to the reality of what life on campus was really. Lauren's parents admitted in the days after Lauren was reported missing that they had, like most parents, put on some rose-colored glasses and probably looked the other way when it came to acknowledging their daughter's life on campus. They quickly came to realize that it wasn't just keggers and bar crawls that made up IU's social scene. There was an underlying prevalence of drug use on campus that certainly hadn't been advertised on the family-friendly tours so many parents attended before writing those tuition checks. Robert even said that it wasn't until they arrived on campus that they started to understand the extent of the party scene at IU. Quote, it was a little bit of a shock, he later told the press. It became even more jarring to them when, on June 6th, police conducted a search of Lauren's room in her apartment, and they found a small bag of cocaine. There's something I haven't told you about Lauren yet that I need to share here. We all know the dangers that taking drugs, drinking too much, and certainly mixing drugs with alcohol present. And if this is the first time you're hearing that, consider this your PSA. Don't fucking mix drugs with alcohol. I don't care who is telling you that you'll be okay if you do. No one can ever guarantee with 100% certainty that mixing drugs and alcohol will wind up being okay. That's a Russian roulette game you do not want to play because your life and your health are the stakes. 
The thing that made this practice of doing just that even more dangerous for Lauren in particular, though, is that she had a cardiac condition called long QT syndrome. Long QT is a heart rhythm disorder. It's similar to having an arrhythmia, which is an irregular heartbeat and is a pretty common medical condition. I myself actually have an arrhythmia. In Lauren's case, though, long QT resulted in her irregular heartbeats to come on suddenly and thus dangerously. In fact, the Mayo Clinic characterizes the condition by fast, chaotic heartbeats, which can result in unexpected fainting episodes, seizures, or sudden death. There's no hard and fast rule about how those with long QT syndrome should behave when it comes to alcohol, but as it is for most people with a condition like this, avoiding excessive alcohol just to be safe is kind of the golden rule. And someone with a condition like Lauren's, well, they should probably stay away from recreational drugs like cocaine. What's scary to think about, knowing how Lauren enjoyed going out and partying as she did, is that it doesn't seem like she stuck to that cardiac golden rule all that closely at all. Now, I want to make it clear. Just because Lauren indulged in all-too-typical college kid behavior does not mean she doesn't deserve to be found that she deserved what evil befell her, or even that she deserved to leave her damn shoes at Kilroy's. She did not deserve for any of this to happen to her, regardless of how drunk she was, how impaired she became, or how irresponsibly that she may have acted. Far be it from me or truly anyone else to pass judgment on Lauren's actions the night she disappeared. There are a number of incidents that I can call to mind of my own behavior from my college days that not only make me cringe, but also shiver. Because my own youthful irresponsibility, coupled with the abject idiocy found throughout college party scenes, is absolutely stupid in terms of its carelessness and the possibility of danger that I know I courted. There are things that both happened to me and that I did as a college student that I will take to the grave, and I would sooner drop dead than want my parents to find out some of the details of some of the drunken things I got up to in college. I say all of this because who amongst us didn't do absolutely stupid, careless, downright dangerous things with the intoxicating freedom and invincibility college seemed to afford us when we arrived on campus? I can admit that I was once a really thoughtless participant of the college party scene. And I do admit that because the amount of people who tried to shame Lauren's name and memory with a misplaced holier-than-thou attitude because she partied like a college kid is simply unfair, it's wrong, and I won't stand for it here. Now that I've successfully clambered up onto my soapbox, let me hop down so we can discuss the things that are really worthy of a side-eye. Namely, how fucking fast certain characters in our story hired lawyers. On June 6th, the same day that the police discovered cocaine in Lauren's room, the first official search for Lauren began. There were hundreds of volunteers, and this search would only be the first of many. They became daily and would carry on for weeks. The very next day, on June 7th, just three days after Lauren was last seen, lawyers started getting hired, and they were criminal defense lawyers at that. Jay's parents hired Jennifer Lukemeyer and Jim Voles. You might recognize that second name because Voles was actually one of Mike Tyson's lawyers during his rape trial back in 1992. These lawyers came out with a statement and said that even before Jay hired them, he had given, quote, 
two statements to the police, rode with them in the area where Lauren was last seen, and shared his phone. Apparently, in one of those statements, Jay claimed that Lauren had drank alcohol, snorted cocaine, and used clonopin. Speaking to Indianapolis Monthly, Robert claimed that after hearing the allegations that Lauren used a number of drugs on her last night, quote, how that figured into the events of the evening, I don't know, but she was certainly susceptible to something bad happening in the event she was given some kind of drug. On the same day, the Bloomington police held their first press conference. They cut right to the point. Foul play was absolutely on the table. Lieutenant Bill Parker said at one point, quote, when somebody at 4.30 in the morning, no shoes and has been drinking earlier, goes out and then just disappears off a street corner, we feel like there certainly could be foul play involved. And just days later, on June 9th, the police confirmed that they had a number of POIs, persons of interest, though they refused to name who specifically they were. When a statement like that gets made, it's hard not to keep the tongues wagging, especially on a college campus. Much like Jay, the other boys who had spent Lauren's last known hours with her soon hired lawyers themselves. By June 12th, all five of them, Jay Rosenbaum, Jesse Wolf, Corey Rossman, Michael Beth, and even David Roan, had all secured criminal defense attorneys. The cooperation Jay's lawyers claimed that he showed seemed to have started and ended with that ride-along he did with police. And even Jesse, he helped with the initial searches, but when the gossip and scrutiny turned their attention onto him, his parents literally scooped him up and whisked him away from campus back to their home in Fort Washington. As I've stated before, I am fully team get a lawyer whenever anything even remotely legally dicey occurs in your life. The thing about this scenario, though, that raises some eyebrows is just how quickly all five of these guys, in Lauren's father's words, quote, clammed up, shut down, and lawyered up. Even the police weren't sure what to make of the almost immediate retention of lawyers. The Herald Times reported that in a press conference when asked if Lauren's friends hold the key to her disappearance, Officer Qualters answered, maybe that's one of the reasons why they don't contact us. He calls it perplexing, curious, disturbing, and unfortunate. This wall of silence and lack of willing cooperation dragged on through the weeks and the months that followed. The search for Lauren included a June 8th investigation into nearby Lake Monroe due to a, quote, anonymous but very specific tip the police received, though no evidence was actually found. Texas EquiSearch volunteered their services, as did canine units, who searched the five North townhomes in each of the boys' apartments. The town, the surrounding city, forests, lakes, and even a nine-day search of the Sycamore Ridge landfill in August were conducted, with no resulting clues, evidence, or even more substantial leads. If Lauren had been killed on June 3rd, 2011, then where the hell was her body? Let's discuss some of the leads that cropped up because there were a number of leads that inevitably sputtered out into dead ends during the initial investigation. A homeless man, Franklin Road Dog Crawford, is said to have reported hearing a scream at 4.35 a.m. in the morning of Lauren's disappearance in just about the area she should have been in. But it's unclear if that tip was ever verified or fully looked into by police. Just days later, Road Dog would be dead. 
It's never been publicized how precisely he died, but rumors circulate about a story that his body was found stuffed into a dumpster. I'm not sure if there's a correlation between Road Dog's death, Lauren's disappearance, and the accounts that say he submitted the tip about the scream, but the suggestion enough is unnerving if you ask me. There was a white truck that was caught on surveillance cameras said to have circled the area Lauren would have been walking on the morning of June 3rd at least twice. The police actually released the grainy video they had this time, asking the public for their help in identifying the truck and if anyone knew about a connection between its owner and Lauren. In one of the snippets, Indianapolis Monthly reported that, quote, in one of the pictures, the truck seemed to have something in the bed just behind the extended cab, which in the public's imagination resembled a huddled human form. However, what seemed like a verifiable lead was turned into a dead end just days later when the owner and driver of the truck, they were cleared. It didn't stop police from still theorizing that perhaps Lauren had been a victim of stranger abduction, however unlikely it did seem. It's been 11 years this summer since Lauren was last seen walking out of that alleyway and since Jay claims he saw her walking down the street in the direction of her apartment. But it feels like we're nowhere closer to having a definitive answer to what happened to Lauren then as we are now. One of the really confounding aspects of this case is how there's damn near zero physical evidence at all. There are no fingerprints, no tire tracks, no blood stains. The only thing we have left over from that night are Lauren's discarded keys from the alleyway, the shoes she left in Kilroy's sand, and her forgotten cell phone. There's never even been so much as a mistaken sighting. It's honestly as if she vanished into thin air. Beyond those three pieces of Lauren that remain from that night, we only have conjecture, campus rumors, and internet hypothesizing. The theories when it comes to this case fall into two decisive categories that then branch off into the wild, twisted world of multiple maybes. Theory number one from the outset has long been that the boys did it. Another variation of BDI in the true crime world. Bonus points if you know what the OG BDI theory is, and I hope to God you do. <laughs> As the theory goes, something happened that night that led to Lauren's demise, either by the hands of the boys that she was with or in the presence of them. Maybe she overdosed because she did mix alcohol with cocaine and clonopin like Jay claims. Maybe she simply drank too much, drank a lethal amount, and died of alcohol poisoning while at Five North townhomes. It's possible her long QT syndrome played a role in an accidental demise as well. She could have passed out on one of the couches that she was offered and just stopped breathing, never to wake up. Or maybe something more sinister happened. Could one of the boys that she was with have assaulted her? Is it possible that one of them became violent, either because she rebuffed advances or just because alcohol can cause us to become illogical? Did somebody accidentally hurt her and things just spiraled out of control? Any of those scenarios are possible in theory, but because of the wall of silence from boys who we know were present at five North townhomes that night, all just speculation. Lauren's parents actually ended up filing a lawsuit in May 2013 against Corey, Jay, and Michael Beth, he who was just trying to study that night, hoping that this would make the boys more cooperative, or at least tell investigators more of what they knew. 
The Spears claimed in the negligence suit that the three boys had a duty to protect Lauren, especially since they alleged that the boys, who were all 21 at the time, remember, quote, supplied her with alcohol after she was already visibly intoxicated and then failed to see that Lauren returned safely to her apartment, which led to her injury and likely death. That said, it's not surprising to me that a judge eventually dismissed the suit against all three of them by 2014. The very idea threatens the foundation of what good Samaritan laws are all about, and it would be a very dicey legal precedent to set. It actually strikes me as something that would make people less inclined to be open about their actions in the event of a drunken accident. So it's no wonder that the boys themselves became even less cooperative after the suit was filed. The second theory is that Lauren did make the walk back to Smallwood Plaza at 4.30 a.m., and she was abducted on her way. Honestly, this theory isn't without good merit. For whatever reason, the area that Bloomington is in has a history of women going missing and getting abducted. In 2000, Jill Berman was abducted while out riding her bike, and her remains were found three years later. Just the year before Lauren vanished, another woman, Crystal Grubb, was found strangled in a cornfield just outside of Bloomington after she went missing. And even after Lauren went missing, so too did yet another girl, Hannah Wilson, who was found bludgeoned to death after her own night of partying. A man named Daniel Messer was charged with Hannah's death after his cell phone was found near her body. And people often wonder, are the two cases connected? Could Daniel Messer have abducted Lauren as well? Was it Israel Keys, the serial killer, who was known to be in Indiana at the time of Lauren's disappearance? Or was it some other shadow, unknown as yet figure? one who seems to have almost flawlessly executed an abduction and gone almost 10 years without detection. The thing is, we just don't know. And what might be the scariest part about this whole case that's comprised of terrifying possibilities is just that. That's already a nice little set of questions. So let's ask the even longer list of hashtag fucking questions that surround this case as a whole. One. To what extent did David Roan interact with Lauren that night? Did he really last see her at 12.30 after he left Jay Rosenbaum's apartment and went back to his own place at Smallwood Plaza? Was Jesse Wolf really watching a basketball final game that night? Has anyone been able to confirm that alibi? Why didn't Jay Rosenbaum go to Kilroy's with Lauren and Corey Rossman? Why did only the two of them go? Who was the guest or guest? Staying with Jay, why have they never come forward? Why did Lauren and Corey leave Kilroy's only 41 minutes after they arrived? Did something happen in Kilroy's that made them want to leave? Or were they forced to leave? Why did Lauren leave her phone at the bar? How did she come to lose track of it? Why did Zach Oates punch Corey? Why didn't Lauren go into her apartment once they were back at Smallwood Plaza? Why did she ever leave her complex after 2.30 a.m.? Was Corey the man seen walking with a girl over his shoulder by a local bar manager that night, and she just had her time wrong? If it wasn't Corey and Lauren, who was it? How did Lauren come to lose track of her keys in the alleyway on the way to Five North Townhomes? Was it Corey seen captured on video with Lauren entering the alleyway? If not, who was it? And if it wasn't Corey... And where was he and who is this second person? 
did Michael Beth really put Corey to bed as quickly as he claims when the two rocked up to their apartment? Why is there almost a 90-minute window between when Lauren is said to have arrived at 5 North around 3 a.m. and when she allegedly left at 4.30 a.m.? How long was she really at Jay's apartment? And who else was there? What really happened in that 90-minute time frame? Why didn't Lauren call Jesse that night? Who was the second phone call she allegedly made on Jay's phone to? And if she did call Jesse, why won't the police confirm it? Unless it's because that very phone call implicates him. Was it really Lauren who made those two calls around 4.15 a.m.? And if it wasn't, who did? And why? Had Lauren been roofied that night, which explains why she got so intoxicated and seemed so impaired, is there any truth to the rumor that Lauren had mixed alcohol with cocaine and clonopin that night? After a night with so many of its events captured on surveillance cameras, why is it that there is no confirmed video of Lauren after 2.51 a.m.? If she actually did leave five North homes and head back to Smallwood Plaza, then why didn't the same cameras that caught her on tape previously in the evening also record her making the same journey after she allegedly left Jay. Why have the boys, specifically Corey Rossman, Jay Rosenbaum, Michael Beth, and Jesse Wolf, refused to cooperate with police after those first few days of the investigation? Why have so many people gone missing from IU and the surrounding area? At this point, majority of the investigators and even Lauren's own parents believe that she's dead. So the question has to be asked, where is Lauren's body and where has it been hidden all of these years? And finally, either accidentally or purposely, who killed Lauren Spear? When you get right down to it, the most confounding aspect of Lauren's disappearance is how completely and totally she vanished. How is it that someone can so easily just be wiped off the face of the planet without any sort of clue or even slight indicator about what actually happened to them. This is the thing that really hangs it all up for me. The almost ease, it seems, someone was able to so ruthlessly steal Lauren away from everything and everyone she loved and who loved her back. It truly is an instance where Lauren vanished so entirely, it makes you pause and wonder if she was ever here at all. And that's so fucking unfair. Lauren Spearer was someone who mattered. She was someone who had dreams of going into fashion merchandising, someone who probably couldn't wait to spend some time with her family when she went home for the summer. She was a girl who might have already been planning the big party that she'd have for her 21st birthday come January. This is a case that sits squarely in the realm of multiple maybes. It's frustrating, it's baffling, and Every possibility can send you down a mental rabbit hole of your own design if you let yourself consider each and every possible scenario that could have happened to Lauren. It's a case about the dangers of college. They're usually hidden behind a facade of fraternity parties, gossip tinged with hints of truth, and intoxicating freedom. It considers the argument that we are each other's keeper, but only by the grace of who we call our friends. Because there are those same friends who will shirk any hint of responsibility towards another if it threatens the comfort of their own life. It forces us to ask the question of if Lauren was surrounded by cowards in the last known hours of her life or if she was in the presence of a monster. 
what we have here is at the end of the day, a mystery. It is the year of our Lord in the otherwise God forsaken 2020. And we still have no idea about what really happened to Lauren after 2.51 a.m. on June 3rd, 2011. The silence from those who were with her in that subsequent time frame is deafening. It makes me think it was cowards Lauren was in the presence of that night. Self-preservation is a hell of a drug. And in the years since Lauren vanished, it seems like everyone she encountered that night is addicted to it. What I want to know is this. When does the line of self-preservation get crossed and stop being a measure to protect yourself and start becoming a noose made up of unsaid things by your own design? Silence is golden, but it also speaks hella fucking volumes. And Lauren's story is one that needs to be told and retold and told again until the silence isn't so much deafening, but that it cracks open entirely to tell us what really happened to that sweet, vivacious college girl who never could have imagined the cowardly monsters that she shared a campus with. And that, my friends, is the story of the disappearance of Lauren Spear. Thanks for listening. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you all. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest members, members, plural, of the Da Patreon crew. Caitlin Otto, Majorly Neal, and Jordan Polancic. Your support truly means the world, so thank you for keeping the figurative DAW lights on. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you should leave a rating and review for the podcast on Apple Podcast. In the meantime, you can find Darkest Hell on Instagram at, at Darkest Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Darkest Hell Pod. Again, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkesthellpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining the Dot Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkesthellpodcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. This month has been chock full of extra content for the Dot Patreon crew. We've had our spooky seance episode about my own hometown murder, which took place two houses up from my childhood home. We've discussed just what the fuck is happening with Britney Spears for our monthly Wine and Weirds live stream. And next week, I'll be rounding up the most noteworthy news pieces for our True Crunch news chit-chat. Truly, you don't want to miss any of this, so come be a part of Da Spooky Crew. Patreon.com slash darkasshellpodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. <laughs>